This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Arlen Migliazzo, Professor Emeritus of History at Whitworth University and the author of Mother of Modern Evangelicalism, The Life and Legacy of Henrietta Mears, published in November of 2020 by Eerdmans Publishing Company as a part of their Library of Religious Biography series. Dr. Migliazzo, congratulations on the book and welcome to New Books in History. (laughs) Thank you, Lane. Well, I think the first question that we have to start off with is who was Henrietta Mears and what led you to write this book about her? Oh, oh, great, great opening. Yeah. Uh, Henrietta Mears, I I never met her, uh, but I kind of bumped into her through much of my kind of formative years. I'm an old broken down youth director and uh, i Served my, my home church is in Compton, California, an old United Presbyterian Church. And that's where I first heard about her. Um, and then I, I came up to Washington State as a what, 21-year-old to do a summer youth work in the Yakima Valley. And I was involved with a group of uh, other folks who were doing similar things in other Presbyterian Reformed churches you know, in the, in the region. And we read uh, a biography of her, and this is what this is back in what seventy three, I think. So it's it's going back a ways. But um, I read the biography, and then it kind of put it aside. And I I was once I I got my uh, doctorate and was starting to teach and all. I kind of put that aside, and again, an interest area, but something that uh, I thought, well, maybe at some point I'll do some work on her. Did some other things, and uh, then uh, oh, about. Well, must be, boy, I bet it's about 14 years ago now. I I ran into an article on her, and I kept the article. It was in a uh, a renewal kind of magazine that came out from a, uh, the Presbyterian Church. And one of her former um, uh, protégés wrote a piece about her, and I thought, that's intriguing. So I put it aside, put it kind of in my little uh, reading basket and then kind of left it there for two or three years. And then after I'd finished another book length project, I happened to pull it out and said, I should start to work on her a little bit. So that's kind of how that started. And, uh, she intrigued me because again, born in 1890, the same year as Amy Semple McPherson, you know, the head of the international church of the four square gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born in, uh, the upper Midwest and, to a family uh, who had initially some fairly substantial resources. Her father was a financier, kind of a land developer kind of guy, but then had some 
pretty severe financial reverses and uh, ended up, they moved six or seven times before she was actually even in third or fourth grade. So I had kind of a, a uh, uh, not tumultuous, but a yeah, pretty difficult childhood, had some physical problems. Uh, and then as she grew to adulthood, she went to the University of Minnesota and got her degree in chemistry and became a, a teacher, taught in a couple of uh, rural schools, uh, one in extreme Eastern uh, Minnesota and the other one in extreme Western Minnesota, and then was involved in Minneapolis uh, teaching at uh, actually her old high school uh, for about 10 years. And while she was doing that, she was also a member of William Riley's First Baptist Church of Minneapolis, which uh, of course was a, a major center of the fundamentalist movement back in the, the uh, teens and the 20s. And so she was raised in that kind of environment. She took over in 1917 a, a girls' Sunday school class. Actually, it's kind of a young women's Sunday school class. Uh, and uh, there were just just a handful of girls in that class initially. Within about seven years, she had built it to the highest, the, the uh, Sunday school class that had the highest enrollment at Riley's Church. It eventually peaked at about 450 young women. Uh, a number of those women went into mission service and lay leadership positions. And in the early 20s, she was invited to come to the, the uh, First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, California, and become the director of Christian education there. And so she, she left in 28 and served, served at that church until her death in 1963 and built it into purportedly the, the largest Sunday school in the Presbyterian Church and one of the, one of the 10 largest Sunday schools in all the United States. Hmm. Uh, so while she was there, uh, the, the church was always, and education was always kind of the focus for her. But in trying to build a better Sunday school, she also did a number of other things. She, for example, started a publishing company when she couldn't find Sunday school materials for her students that she thought passed muster. So she started the Gospel Light Press, and uh, that became one of the four largest independent uh, religious publishing companies in the entire country. Um, uh, so, but that all started because she wanted her her students to have good, solid Sunday school materials that were biblically based. So uh, that became a, an issue that went well beyond the bounds of First Presbyterian Church. She also believed very much in developing retreats for her students where they could come away for an extended period of time uh, and kind of just concentrate on Christian growth, biblical literacy, and those sorts of things. Uh, and that led in uh, 1938 to the founding of the Forest Home Christian Conference Center, which today hosts upwards of 65,000 people uh, mm -hmm. a year uh, at multiple sites there in Southern California. She became a, a mentor to many, many folks in the, we would call it the kind of new evangelical wing of the church um, that begins uh, really to be recognized in the 1940s, although she had been doing some of the same things that these neo-evangelicals were doing in the, 30, in the 40s and 50s back in the teens and the 20s. Um, she became really involved in the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, she mentored people like, uh, well, Jim Rayburn, who was the head of uh, uh, Young Life International. Uh, hmm. He was one of her protégés. Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, lived with her. He and his wife lived with her for almost 10 years right across hmm. the street from UCLA. And the, the Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ 
came out of her influence. Uh, Billy Graham was very deeply influenced by Mears. Um, I mean, right before the big campaign in 1949 in L.A., which really caused him to become a a leader in this evangelical movement. He had spent a week at Forest Home with Henrietta Mears and really had a crisis of faith there that she helped him work through. Um, uh, She was involved in uh, a, a number of organizations over the years and sent you know, again, I don't think anyone can really know how many missionaries or pastors she that trained under her leadership. Uh, the the round figure is often given to be four hundred, and in the book I list as many as I could find, and there are a lot of them. But I'm not sure that's even all of them because the ones that I found were only uh, folks that were involved in Reformed churches, and of course she influenced a lot of folks in Baptist circles uh, and in other denominations. Uh, and there's no way to kind of know how many of those folks she influenced. So she had a she had a wide ranging influence over, again, over 40 years, probably close to 50 years, if we take her, her years of ministry in Minneapolis, as well as her years in the LA area. Hmm. Well, your book is certainly bringing some much needed uh, attention to uh, to her influence. So, I, 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 you've mentioned uh, some of the major points of the book. Let's uh, let's kind of walk back through some of that chronology. Um, so, you, you noted as a young person that Mears joined the First Baptist Church in Minneapolis, uh, which, as you noted, was was led by William Bell Riley. And this was in the first decade of the 20th century as, as that fundamentalist and modernist controversy was really starting to heat up. Now, the title of your book. Places Mears as a, a catalyst figure for modern evangelicalism. So, I, I guess discuss what you mean by that, and how the background at um, at Riley's church really shaped her theological trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know. Again, there's a, there's a, of course a raging controversy over what evangelicalism or modern evangelicalism mm-hmm. looks like. And in the book, I try to make the argument that uh, it has less to do with theology and a lot more to do with kind of an approach to contemporary culture, the life of the mind, and those sorts of things. So what um, what I think Mears was really influential in is maintaining a very strong sense of biblical orthodoxy. Uh, I mean, again, if you look at evangelicals, modern evangelicals, and you look at fundamentalists of the, of the teens and 20s and such, you'll find that theologically they have an awful lot in common. You know, the the personal uh, work of Christ, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, uh, the importance of the Bible as the final authority in, in issues of faith and life. Uh, these kinds of major doctrines are shared by fundamentalists and uh, these modern evangelicals. And I think that's where, I think her years as a young adult in Riley's church, again, she grew up in, in that church. She, again, became a member before by, by, before she was 10 years old of that church. Uh, but then when she went uh, went away to college, to the university and, again, did some teaching outside of the Minneapolis area, that's where I think she made that kind of fundamentalist approach to uh, life. Uh, that's where she made the, the kind of distinction in her own life because she was a, a person that believed very much uh, that, you know, you have to nurture the life of the mind. And I think that's one of the one of the hallmarks of modern evangelicalism, certainly back in the 40s when it first began to develop, uh, I think, mm. in, the, in the country. Uh, she always believed in that. I mean, she, this woman was a chemistry major when women were not really, uh, that was not an area that women really occupied very much in the university. 
she believed very much that you had to nurture the life of the mind. And I think fundamentalists, and Riley is a great example of this because he had a crusade against the University of Minnesota, which of course was her alma mater. And I think she really mm-hmm. parted company with him there. She believed that you know Christ could answer all the questions that we have as believers. And you didn't have to fear that. You didn't have to fear investigation or rational thinking or, or science for that matter. I mean, she believed in science um, for her entire life uh, and built a lot of her ministry on what we might consider a rational kinds of ideas. So I think that's a, that's a way where these, these evangelicals, and that's why I think the term the mother of modern evangelicalism is important because she's doing this in the, in the teens and the 20s uh, this this kind of rethinking about the relationship of, of Christians to American culture and this sort of things. So she always believed that you have to nurture the life of faith first. I mean, that was that was the most important thing. Evangelism was number one for her. But mm-hmm. she also believed that, you know, you have to serve a, a blessed and broken world. And so even in those days when she was in uh, Minneapolis with that uh, group of young women, she always emphasized service to others. Now, again, that has to be put in the context of evangelism because I think her hope always was that people would be brought to Christ. But I mean, she, they would, they would go to, um, well, for example, there was a, there were a series of homes at the time for unwed mothers. And so she would, uh, have a uh, ministry to, to those, uh, women in those, those, the Florence Crittenden homes is what they were called. Um, she, they would do work with uh, underprivileged, underserved kids, underserved populations in Minneapolis, and of course also in uh, in the greater LA area. So that was always important too. Um, she also believed that though you had to engage secular culture, you couldn't separate from it. See, I think that's another one of these differences between modern evangelicalism and fundamentalism, especially mm-hmm. a, a particular wing of fundamentalists that believed that you had to have strict separation between the things of the Lord, uh, and, or the things of the kingdom, if you will, and the things of this world. And Mir said, no, you have to, we have to thoughtfully engage culture. Uh, and that I think was really an important part of who she was. She also believed that the, the importance of including others uh, was, was, uh, paramount. Now that doesn't mean, I, I don't mean to imply that, that any takers, uh, were in under her umbrella. But I think if we look at her, especially in the context of her time, her reaching out to folks in other denominations and her her intriguing kind of perspective with regard to Roman Catholicism at the time, uh, you know, again, I think she had, she really struggled with the, the uh, liturgical side of things. I think, mm-hmm. again, being raised as a Baptist uh, and she kind of called herself a kind of a Bapterian often. But the idea that, you know, the liturgical kinds of things, sacramentalism. She wasn't so uh, enamored of those kinds of issues because she saw them as ritual and not life. Mm. Uh, so we can't certainly say that she was welcoming uh, Roman Catholics in the same sense that we might think about that, uh, that bigger body of Christ today. But she certainly was not the, the um, enemy of Roman Catholicism, as so many of those, even the evangelicals were of the 1940s and 50s. She, she, she tried to cast a real wide net. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is she was nominated for a, uh, an award uh, that was given every year. And again, I, there, there are different regions of the country, but uh, this particular organization included uh, Jewish women, Roman Catholic women, and Protestant women. 
Hmm. And she was nominated for an award from this group in, in the 1950s. So I think, again, you get this sense that, well, they must have recognized that she really did have an important contribution to make to the community and to have women from those three different perspectives uh, supporting her nomination, I think is pretty significant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that is very helpful. So um, Mir's, uh, or one of the things I found really fascinating is, is how Mir's developed her pedagogy as a, as a public educator and administrator in Minnesota first, and then transitioned these skills over into the religious realm at her, at her home church. Uh, when she took over um, the expanding educational mission there. Now, you note that her class there uh, in, uh, at First Baptist, it outgrew every room that the church had. Um, so in your research, I, I guess, what did you find that explained the popularity of her, her pedagogy? What, was, was this something common that was going on at the time, or was, was she really an innovator in this realm? Yeah, I think I think uh, that's a, that's again an excellent question. When I pondered both looking at what happened in Minneapolis at First Baptist, and also of course what happened in Southern California, I think what really set her apart was that she was a she was an excellent teacher. I mean, there's no getting around that. I mean, she was able. I mean, the folks that I talked to just said, you know, you just sit under her for five minutes. You're going, how did this woman? How does she come up with this stuff? I mean, hmm. she's so insightful just had such a strong sense of God's presence and God's care. Um, But I think the other thing that she did is that she really could communicate care for the individual. Now, you know, when she, uh, again, that, that class at uh, that young woman's class in uh, Minneapolis uh, grew to again, over 400, the one in uh, Southern California at first press Hollywood actually had an enrollment of over 800, um, Mm. Now, that doesn't mean they all showed up every Sunday, but I mean these were these were enrolled members of the class, the college department. Uh, but but she could, and I, I talked to more people that said she could just make you feel like you were the most important person in the world uh, as individual. And I think they they picked that care up. I think another thing that she did is this woman was a tremendous organizer. Uh, she believed very much that once someone comes through the door, you want to make sure that they not only feel welcomed, but that they also have a role to play in the success of the group. And mm. there are countless stories over the years of people that would come in the door to either the college department at First Press Hollywood or the uh, Fidelis class there at uh, First uh, Baptist uh, Minneapolis. And she found a, a job for them uh, right away. And she made sure that they were welcomed uh, and that they had a role to play. And she always tied the role that each individual played to the success of the class itself. And I think that's really the, you know, those three things, you know, her ability to exposit scripture so clearly and to have examples that just, just spoke to folks, the ability to make every person feel like they were part of the group, that they were, they were, um, it was a privilege for, for them uh, to be part of the group. And the group felt that the group felt that there was, it was a privilege uh, for these visitors to come and, and be welcomed in and then to find a place for each of them. 
to serve. Um, I remember speaking to one individual and he, he showed up went uh, went uh, to the, the college department in Hollywood a few times and she she plugged him in as kind of a social chairman um, <laughs> just like that uh, now you could argue perhaps well that, that could lead to some problems and, and it did I mean I think I mentioned a few of them in the book but um, generally people knew that she cared about them and that she, and that the, the role that they played in that class was important for the success of the class. That help a little bit? Absolutely. That that that, that is a fascinating account. So Mears, uh, she she makes the move to Los Angeles, and and I find early twentieth century L.A. to be this fascinating place from a religious perspective because it was both Tinseltown and it had all all of the excesses that we still sort of associate with that culture, but it was also this hot house of of Christian fundamentalism. And you mentioned a figure like Amy Simple McPherson, uh, fighting Bob Schuler was a Southern Methodist fundamentalist uh, across town uh, at the Methodist Church there, and then of course you had uh, the First Presbyterian Church in, in Hollywood which was very theologically conservative. So I guess talk a bit about that context. How do you think it shaped Mears and, and her specific ministry in that Southern California era? Well, that's, that's, that's another, an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I think that she realized when she went, there was, there's, uh, I picked up in her personal correspondence some sense of trepidation leaving Minneapolis for L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of it was that, what you say that LA is kind of a different animal than Minneapolis. It, it, it is now it was then. Right. And her concern that can I get, well, this will, well, what I did here translate well into Southern California and that cultural context that, that was growing up in LA at the time. And I think that she very quickly recognized that the, the, the basic kinds of approaches that she took again, uh, expository uh, teaching, caring for individuals that, you know, that's universal. It doesn't matter, you know, where you live. If you, if you feel cared for, you're going to, you're going to be part of that group uh, where you feel cared for. Um, I think she also really tried, and again, this is kind of where the big tent idea comes in. She really tried to connect with folks that maybe would have disagreed with their uh, in terms of, uh, for example, you know, her involvement in the, the uh, co-founding of the Hollywood Christian Group in 1949, there were many uh, evangelicals that really were frustrated with Hollywood and Tinseltown and that whole shtick. Uh, she wasn't. Um, she, she tried to include as many people in, under that tent as she possibly could, and so I think her involvement with with that Hollywood Christian group for the first ten years of its of its uh, life, uh, her willingness to 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 reach out to Amy Simple McPherson uh, by by the folks that I from the folks that I talked to, she and Amy Simple McPherson had a, a cordial relationship until the death of of the uh, the latter in the forties. Um, and again, that's something that other uh, many others would say. Well, you know, you want to stay clear of someone like that. Um, uh, she, she was, a she, she had oral Roberts probably prayed for her at least once for her healing of her eyes, which was an affliction she had from a very young age. Mm. Uh, you know, again, faith healers. I mean, she, one of the faith, local faith healers, um, opened her home to Mears's college group. And so those kids would go, you know, and have sings or, or socials at, uh, at the, the home of one of the faith healers of, of the area. So again, I think that the net that she cast was really quite wide, uh, now, again, I, I don't want to imply that everybody who claimed to be 
uh, a believer was part of that group. But I think her net was a lot wider uh, and her umbrella was a lot larger uh, than a lot of folk, a lot of her contemporaries. I mean, mm-hmm. if you see, for example, one of the things that I, I found just astounding is that she actually would rent films from the L.A. school district uh, sex education films. Now, again, granted, sex education films in the 40s and 50s were not <laughs> nearly as involved as they, they are today. But, I mean, to, that you would have essentially a, a, an evangelical person that is renting these films, showing them in the church, and believing very much that that's, that's where you want to teach students about sexuality uh, mm-hmm. in the church. Uh, and, again, I just think that... <laughs> That that is phenomenal when you think of the the, the context of uh, of evangelicalism or fundamentalism uh, in the 1940s and 50s. I mean, it, that's just phenomenal to me. Um, yeah, it, it it really is remarkable. Um, now, in the in the post World War II years, you note that Mears's reputation it really went from a kind of local religious celebrity in Los Angeles to, to a national and even international platform. Um, talk about some of the opportunities that she had and her influence in the, in transatlantic Protestantism of, of those decades. Mm, good, good question. Yeah. She, I think her involvement, uh, first of all, I think the, the founding of the Gospelite press uh, mm. in the early thirties was, was a, a step toward that. Now it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, but by the 19, uh, later forties and the fifties, her uh, materials, her Sunday school materials, were used not just nationally. I mean, there were thousands, and I can't remember what the that the numbers were. I've got them in the book, but I, I can't pull them up. But there were thousands of churches uh, in this country using her stuff, but they were also being used internationally. Um, so I think that's one way her reputation got out. Another way was that she traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she went uh, at least 10 trips overseas. And what she would do, and I've heard the first trip she took actually happened before she even moved to L.A. when she went to uh, Europe uh, after, the, after the First World War, did a little tour there as a, as a college graduate, university graduate. Uh, but she, she would go overseas and visit a lot of the missionaries that the church had sent out. And so I think that, and then of course, those in, in various areas, various mission areas, they would have conferences or opportunities for her to speak to, to wider groups of missionaries that weren't just folks that were sent out from First Press Hollywood, but that you know were folks that had come from other parts of the, of the country and the world. Uh, so I think that's also an important thing. Mm-hmm. By the 1940s, uh, particularly the later 40s, she's really involved in the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, you know, the NAE gets founded in the early, early 40s, but she's really involved uh, in many kinds of ways uh, in the, the, in the uh, NAE. She was a, a member of the Commission on International Relations in the, in the, for most of the 1950s for the NAE. Uh, she was also an advisory board member for the World Evangelical Fellowship from uh, 1956 forward. Uh, she was also a, a, an advisory board member for the Commission on World Event, the World Evangelical Fellowship. Oh, I already mentioned that. I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but she she did these kinds of things uh, as she continued to gain uh, a reputation as a, a respected Bible teacher and a Christian educator. I think finally, the last thing that, that demonstrates this, uh, and again, I, I think it's also an example of her kind of forward thinking, 
um, less than two years before she died, she found something called Glint, which is Gospel Light International. What she realized in her travels is that a lot of the folks, the indigenous populations, needed to be able to be trained so that they could evangelize their own folks. And again, that's pretty progressive in the 1950s and the early 1960s, because again, at that point, the the American mission movement or the European mission movement was still fairly strong. But she's saying essentially, yes, that's that's important, but we need to make sure that we can train these folks to take over, uh, you know, evangelism uh, and service in their own countries. And so uh, Gospel Light International, Glint, uh, was a kind of an offshoot in a sense of uh, gospel, the gospel light press that is providing uh, materials in the, in the languages of the indigenous populations uh, and thereby helping train them uh, in toward uh, evangelism and service in their own areas. So I think, again, those are, those are, she was really involved. Lillian Lillian Dixon was a missionary uh, in uh, Taiwan, uh, had a mission uh, emphasis on, um, orphans and uh, dispossessed uh, young people, particularly, and Mears really got behind that and helped build help build the reputation uh, of the what Lillian Dixon was doing. And uh, again, th- and Lillian Dixon, of course, in response, of course, touted uh, Mears's influence uh, and help in that particular. Uh, organization. So I think she she seems to me to be, again, an individual who is willing to try new things, uh, to see things a little bit differently, a little less um, Euro or American centric. Uh, and I think, again, I don't want to I don't want to belabor that too much. I, I mean, I think obviously she still had limitations and I have a whole chapter on, I think, what what some of those limitations were. Uh, but by the same token, given the context of the time, uh, I think she was a, a pretty progressive thinker in many ways while remaining a very theologically conservative uh, and Christ-centered uh, Christian educator. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, talk about Mears's relationship to Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, maybe first explain that for listeners who aren't quite as familiar with what Fuller represented, especially when it was founded, um, uh, to talk about what Fuller is and, and then how Mears's life and ministry sort of played into the, the founding of that particular school at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuller, Fuller Seminary was the, the brainchild of Charles E. Fuller, who was a, he was, uh, I think born in, I think he was born in Orange County. I know he had a, he had a ministry there for a long time, but became very popular, uh, on the radio, uh, as the leader, he and his wife of what was called the old fashioned revival hour. And mm-hmm. it was a very, very important, uh, radio ministry, not just in Southern California, but it was, it was n- nationwide. It was, it was quite well known. And in the forties, uh, Fuller was thinking about, again, the future of, uh, Christianity, particularly Orthodox Christianity in, the uh, country and the world and began to think about the possibility of founding a graduate uh, institution that would train folks uh, from an evangelical perspective, uh, again, to serve and to minister to uh, the modern world. And so that's kind of the the genesis of of Fuller Seminary. He got Harold John Ockengay, who was the leader of one of the largest uh, evangelical churches in Boston, uh, and uh, Park Street Church uh, mm. was what it was called. And 
he had a, a tremendous ministry on the East Coast, and Fuller was able to convince him to take the uh, position of uh, president uh, initially. For he, so he was the first president of, of Fuller Seminary and served in that capacity for a few years. He also pulled seminary professors, very prominent seminary professors from other large, well-known seminaries uh, in the Midwest and the East Coast, uh, the East Coast uh, and um, in the South, uh, and put together, again, a staff that was, uh, again, committed to bring this again, kind of Mearsian perspective on faith, if you will, in the uh, 20th century uh, to a a graduate institution. And Mm. so that's the context for the founding of the seminary. And of course, it became became the largest evangelical seminary in the the country. Uh, And today has, I think, uh, at least at its high point, had uh, thousands of folks that Mm. were um, involved in uh, seminary education. Mears got involved a couple years after the founding because there was, a, from the very beginning, Fuller uh, initially uh, believed, again, the, the, the guiding lights of Fuller believed that, again, it's a place for men to train uh, for uh, advanced uh, ministry. Uh, and women were essentially uh, help me. It's okay. They were the wives. Uh, and so right from the beginning, there was kind of a wives fellowship. But some of the women kind of chafed at that and said, well, why can't we take seminary classes? So almost <laughs> from the very beginning, uh, Fuller had to kind of consider the women. Uh, and uh, eventually, again, it only took a couple of three years. Uh, eventually, Fuller realized, boy, you know, there's a real interest uh, that women have in uh, seminary education. Now, it was uh, not appropriate at that particular point in time for women to uh, send to formal ministry. In other words, that to, to be ordained to uh, the ministry was not something that uh, very many evangelicals at all believed. And of course, Fuller Seminary was in that, that same tradition. So they did not really believe that women should come to seminary to be, become ordained. But they also realized that women had a hunger for advanced education, and also that many women were serving as directors of Christian education or music ministers in churches. And so they developed a, a program, I think it was called the Bachelor of Sacred Ministry, if I remember correctly, uh, degree for women. Hmm. And uh, then once that happened, they thought, well, now, wait a second, if we have women in seminary, we probably should have a woman uh, that is actually a member of the faculty. And so they began looking then for a female to serve as the first chair of Christian education. Because, of course, if you're going to have a Bachelor of Sacred Ministry degree, you want to have the, the possibility of extended uh, study in uh, Christian education, uh, curriculum, uh, theory, that sort of thing. And so that's when they recruited uh, a number of, they recruited for this position and what's so intriguing is that they they uh, recruited the same person that uh, had been offered the position of the first chair of Christian education at uh, Wheaton College. Uh, they offered that same position to her uh, at Fuller, and she turned them down. Hmm. And Mears was the other one that was in the running for this. But you know, unlike. Uh, this other uh, individual, Mears didn't have any any advanced degree at all. I mean, she just had a bachelor degree, bachelor's degree from the University of Minnesota in chemistry. And so the, a lot of the seminarians, and again, this would be Carl F.H. Henry, you know, folks like that, um, that thought, well, now she doesn't have an advanced degree. Is that going to go over very well? 
so they they offered the position to this other woman, and Mears uh, kind of was in the background, and and they were mostly concerned about Mears, not necessarily her degree so much, or lack of there, lack of degree. They were concerned because <laughs> of her forceful personality. In fact, I've got some great quotes in the book for the taken right from the fuller faculty minutes that talk about the fact that they're afraid that she could take over the faculty. Uh, <laughs> so all these guys would be intimidated by, by Henrietta Mears. And so rather than, you know, um, um, select her initially, they selected this other woman. She turned him down. Then they went back to Mears and she turned him down. Hmm. So uh, it became a really intriguing study in the kind of late 40s and early 50s there in terms of Fuller Seminary as to what they were looking for and what what kind of woman they were looking for. And they believed that uh, Mears was just a little bit too um, forceful. Uh, and that, and then when they finally did offer it to her, she turned it down uh, as she turned down the first chair in Christian education at Wheaton uh, back in 1936. Hmm. That is a remarkable story. <laughs> Now, one of the later chapters in your book you've noted uh, is on paradoxes and limitations. And this one was particularly illuminating for me, I think, because it it really brought out the human side of of Mears with her weaknesses and contradictions, as we all have. Uh, You know, you know, she was a humble person. She was spendthrift, but also managed to accumulate a a pretty significant fortune and and really basked in the Southern California lifestyle, or at least parts of it. Uh, She was incredibly successful at at growing ministries. But as you just noted, that often came with um, some pretty exacting standards that could be off-putting for some. I I guess the question is, when you finish the book, what was what's your personal opinion of Mears? Is is she someone that you would um, that you would want teaching your children in Sunday school class? Uh, you, you know, I, the questions you're asking are things that I've just I've thought about so much. Um, you know, I think that Mears, <clears throat> Mears always knew where she wanted to go. And she all, mm. also knew how she wanted to get there. Mm. And I think one of the things that struck me is I, I, I think I probably would have chafed a little bit um, under her. Uh, under her ministry, not that I wouldn't have appreciated it, but I think that she she just had a way. And again, interviewing all these folks that knew her and really loved her, uh, you you get a sense that again she would let you know what you should be doing. Um, <laughs> and I think one of the things I tried to point out in that in that chapter is that <laughs> she she would say on the one hand that you know I want you to be where God wants you to be, and so she would kind of leave it completely open. But then there are these cases where she says, "No, I think God wants you here." So you know, it depended on who you were as to how she kind of um, thought about your future uh, and, uh, you know, where you should be and what God wants you to do. I mean, Gary Demarest is such a great example because, uh, again, Gary Demarest was a very prominent Presbyterian pastor, retired a number of years ago now. But he um, uh, was also involved with, uh, you know, a lot of the... Um, Ministries of the Presbyterian Church and also other other ministries, but Gary Demers told me that the, that she the first time probably the first time she met him, uh, she looked at him and said, "God wants you in the ministry." Well, he was a civil engineer. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not sure he was a civil engineer. I can't remember now, but he he was an engineering graduate from University of California Berkeley and was working, I think, in Pasadena at the time. And she just said, you know, she met him one time, said, "You need to be in the ministry." And he just he said, "You've got to be kidding me." Well, he ended up in the ministry. <laughs> So, uh, and you hear these stories again and again and again. And and so on the one hand, I, I'm just 
astounded that she had that kind of ability to show folks uh, kind of where they could be used by God. On the other hand, I'm not sure I would take too well to someone that told me that this is what God wants me to do. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, if you, you, I'm more of a person that kind of responds to the subtle kind of, have you thought about this, Arlen, or have you thought about that? Uh, I think mirrors came right down and kind of hit you right between the eyes. If you were one of those people that she felt that way about, because there were plenty of folks where she didn't necessarily say that this is where you need to be, but she would guide that she would encourage them to seek God's direction. So it just depended on who you were, whether you got the kind of the frontal approach or the more subtle approach. And if she gave me the subtle approach, I think we'd get along fine. If she was more kind of, right in my face. I'm not sure. I might have a little trouble with that. <laughs> Understood. Well, Dr. Migliazzo, thank you so much for the time that you've given us today, and especially for writing this fantastic and much needed uh, biography. Um, and, uh, b- before we go, do you have any other projects that you're working on right now? Anything we can look forward to? Oh, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm working on a, a book of short essays, but that's kind of just in the very formative formative. Uh, uh, stage at this particular point. So this was kind of my uh, my uh, kind of last big project uh, mm. as a as a historian. I'm still kind of got my fingers in some things, but nothing nothing like this. I mean, this is this is really when this book was published. It was really there was a sigh of kind of relief. And the intriguing thing for me uh, that I didn't even realize when I began this is how connected I was to her. Uh, and I never even realized it before this. As I said, I, you know, I grew up in Southern California. My home church was uh, St. John's United Presbyterian Church in Compton, California. And I didn't even know it at the time, but my home church pastor there, Bruce Curley, one of our assistant ministers, Ted Nissen, the Christian education director, uh, Norm Wright, were all Mears guys. Wow. Uh, and I had no idea of that growing up. I, I grew yeah. up in gospel light, Sunday school material. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, when I did youth work on my on, uh, as in my early mid twenties and came to Washington, I sat under the ministry of one of her other guys that had been uh, trained by one of her disciples. So I was kind of a, in a sense, kind of a third generation uh, Mirzian without even really knowing it. Uh, mm. And that's one of the most intriguing things to me about this whole process is that it kind of brings my life. Uh, f- you know, my, my professional life in Washington State, together with my kind of formative years in L.A. in ways that I never would have expected that there would be that kind of connection. Huh. Well, it is a fascinating story that you've told in the book and um, uh, is, is one that I would encourage uh, anyone interested in the study of, uh, of evangelicalism in America to, to make sure they, they pick up. Uh, it, is, it is really a great book. Uh, Dr. Arlen Migliazzo is the author of Mother of Modern Evangelicalism, The Life and Legacy of Henrietta Mears. It is available now from Eerdmans Publishing Company and is, as I've said, just a fantastic addition to the Religious Biography series. Dr. Migliazzo, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you, Lane. And thank you for listening to New Books in History. Make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcast to keep up with the latest and the best books that are out there right now. Thanks for listening and be well.